Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Climate Press. My name is Tom Wood, a climate scientist from the University of Leeds and co-producer of the Climate Press, a podcast and blog series where we try to connect climate science with public understanding and action. For this special episode, I joined the Fridays for Future climate protests in Leeds City Centre towards the end of 2019 and spoke to some of the protesters about why they had decided to attend. I spoke to a wide range of people of different ages, from primary school pupils to retired octogenarians, from climate scientists to trade unionists and environmental activists. Fridays for Future, also known as the School Strike for Climate, is an international protest movement, primarily consisting of young people pushing for widespread political action to tackle the climate crisis. They do this by striking from their schools on Fridays and joining protests in towns and cities around the world. The movement began gaining momentum from late 2018, when a 15-year-old Swede, Greta Thunberg, staged a protest at her school which gained international attention and inspired millions of young people and older supporters to take to the streets and demand change. Greta was clearly an inspiration for many of the protesters. Her name cropped up time and again during our conversations. Um, I read an interview with Greta, obviously Greta Thunberg. She gets all of her speeches fact-checked by climate scientists. Because that certain 16-year-old has somehow managed to ignite something which after all the years of lobbying with scientists and, and putting this, the rational scientific point of view has just seemed to bounce off everything. She's come along at the right time and she's inspired people in a way which I wouldn't think were possible. You know, I used to follow Jonathan Porritt when he was head of the Green Party and, and things like this and I thought, what a very elegant man. He could put his case over, he had all these good ideas. Uh, but he couldn't make a din. And then a 16-year-old comes along and says, you're not listening to scientists. I think it's absolutely brilliant. January 2019, Greta gave a speech to the World Economic Forum in Davos. Solving the climate crisis is the greatest and most complex challenge that Homo sapiens have ever faced. The main solution, however, is so simple, we have to stop the emissions of greenhouse gases. Adults keep saying, we owe it to the young people to give them hope. But I don't want your hope, I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act as if you would in a crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. I noticed this phrase, our house is on fire, adorning several protest banners throughout the day. It obviously resonated with many people and showed the power of framing the crisis in clear and concise language. Greta herself made a point of this when she spoke to the UN in 2018. You are never too small to make a difference. If a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. I arrived at Millennium Square in Leeds on a sunny autumn afternoon 
to find thousands of people chanting and bearing placards. You could immediately feel an atmosphere of positivity and hope, but also anger and frustration at the perceived lack of action by those in power. After a short time, I ran into two of my colleagues at the University of Leeds, Dr. Chris Smith and Dr. Leighton Regare. Both Chris and Leighton are fellow climatologists in Leeds University's Institute of Climate and Atmospheric Science, or ICAS. Chris studies many aspects of the climate using models, including how sensitive the climate is to changes in atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases and aerosols, and the balance of energy coming into and leaving the Earth. Leighton similarly studies a number of aspects of the climate and focuses on the effect of aerosols and the use of statistics to improve climate models. I began by asking them why they had decided to attend the protest that day and what they were missing to be there. I came down to support the students who've been striking for months now on our behalf and this is the first time where you know, older people have been able to legitimately come down and give them open, full support. I'm here to support the students because I believe that we need to take direct action to get the message across that climate change is a massive issue. Historically, governments and, and policymakers haven't necessarily got the message and we want to show that it's something that people really care about in their day-to-day -day lives because it affects all aspects of the future. What are you missing to be here today? I'm missing sitting in front of a computer, doing lots of climate model runs, writing a paper. I'm basically taking three hours off to join in the protest and uh, show my support. I'm doing some pretty important research and I'm meant to be preparing for a presentation I have to give next week, which is going to cut into you know, my weekend or some other time in the evenings, but it's worth it. As you can hear, both Chris and Leighton were more than willing to take time out of their busy research work to support the strike and both felt it was necessary to take direct action to try and bring about change. A similar attitude was expressed by many of the other protesters I spoke to, including some of the young people there. There's more we could do to stop climate change and that the governments aren't doing enough. I spoke to Theo Cordenley from Horsford School. I'm here because I think that climate change is a thing that needs to be solved and yeah, if people don't do something about it then it's not going to get solved. Theo told me about how he and his friends in their band group LSAT Rocks were writing and recording songs to raise awareness about climate change. For the band group I think called LSAT Rocks, we're doing a project called Up in Flames where we make our own songs and release them for climate change. The band planned to release their music on streaming services such as Spotify and they did just that, launching the project at a Horsford pub in October 2019 and performing their single, Up In Flames, at the Leeds Playhouse in July. Living 
Again, we hear how this phrase, this concise message, our house is on fire, has connected with people, the rhythmic nature lending itself to a chorus hook in a rock song. Clearly engaged and passionate about climate change, I asked Theo what he thought was the primary thing we could do to help tackle climate change. Definitely change the way that people think about it. Like, instead of thinking it's good because it makes it hotter, it's bad because it makes it hotter and like eventually it's going to melt every other ice caps and eventually kill us all. I could hear the strong sense of urgency in what Theo was saying. Many in Theo's generation consider this a matter of life and death, with the potential worst case scenarios of climate change being catastrophic for humans within their lifetimes. The feeling of dread felt by many people when they consider these worst case scenarios can be damaging to mental health. This has been called eco-anxiety, and there have been reports of an uptick in people presenting symptoms recently. I came across a stall where NHS doctors, Mia and James, were raising awareness of the need to look after your mental health regarding these feelings of angst. I'm here as part of the, the climate clinic that we set up. I feel there's a, probably a, a need for a space to have people come in and talk about some of the psychological issues that I'm facing in thinking and dealing with climate change. We're not here to treat or anything like that, but we're just opening up a space from a non-healthcare sort of professional point of view. Just, but we recognise the need for people to air some of those views, um, to air some of the guilt that they might find, find difficult to share, or some of the worries that they have for their, their future, for their children's future. And we want to be able to provide a safe space for people to come and talk confidentially and we can help signpost them to other services if they need to. Right. Uh, but generally it's a place for them to air, get things off the chest basically. I think mental well-being is something that we shouldn't be reactive to when things go wrong. It has to form a part of the culture amongst activist groups to look out for each other, to actually develop mental resilience techniques. Uh, and to also recognise their own limits in not doing too much too quickly. I think a lot of people in activist circles will know the term burnout. Some unfortunately may have been burnt out uh, and we want to help highlight those issues. We need to pace ourselves, although we haven't got a lot of time to turn things around. It's still a long slog from a human's perspective. Mia told me how there needed to be an attitude shift in businesses and the government for genuine action on climate change to take place. I think... Um We've got to get businesses and governments to start not just reacting to the urgency of it because they think people are going to buy their stuff or vote for them, but feeling the urgency of it in a way that they make meaningful change. And that's why events like today are so important because it just shows that people really care about it and it's on people's minds and it's important to people. So we've got to make kind of huge, wide systemic changes in, in where we put our money, where we get our energy from, how we, how we run businesses and that sort of thing. There is a debate about whether change needs to come from above, with businesses changing their products, either through fear of reputational damage, shareholder revolts, or through legislation from government, forcing the consumer to change their buying habits. Or from below, with all of us individually changing our consumption practices, 
lowering our individual carbon emissions and driving that change ourselves. Mia thinks it's a mixture of both. I mean, I don't think it's wholly either responsibility. Everyone is a consumer and a business owners are consumers as well as being business owners, do you know what I mean? So it's not like us and them. I think yeah. as a society, we've just got to change the way that everyone acts. And so the way, that, the way that I spend my money and where I bank and what I buy drives what businesses do, but they've also got responsibility and it's, it's all part of the same system. So I think, no, you can't lay all the blame at anyone's door, I think is, is key because it won't work. The idea that there must be systemic changes was shared by scientists Leighton and Chris. Chris Smith told me what he thought was the main thing that needed to happen to prevent dangerous climate change. There has to be a phasing out of fossil fuels. The fossil fuel combustion is, as I'm sure are all aware, emitting lots of um, CO2 and, and other greenhouse gases as well as air pollution and there's only a finite amount of CO2 we can still emit to avoid dangerous climate change. So taking money out of fossil fuels and divesting and ramping down our usage of fossil fuels is, is probably the best thing we can do from a sort of policy point of view. I also asked Chris whether this change needed to come from a governmental level or from the consumer. So something that big and institutionally um, locked in is, is going to have to come from governments and, and businesses taking the lead but as citizens we have a, a responsibility almost and a, uh, we have the power to sort of really demand the changes that we want to see in our society yeah. so we can actually have a, a really big influence um, in sort of shaping the future that we want. Leighton Regare told me about some of the things we could all do as consumers to, as Chris said, help shape the future that we want and what policy changes the government could make to help facilitate those changes. Seems like there's a couple of really big things we could do. As individuals, cutting down our meat consumption seems like a major issue. They're changing how much we fly. I really like the idea of having an incremental tax on people who fly frequently, so that it increases exponentially the cost they have to pay with every extra flight they take within a year. Because some people just fly all the time. The retired people who don't have as much invested in the long-term future are flying freely and without conscience. So there's some big steps that we could take as individuals or nationally. Leighton explained how this incremental tax on flying to discourage frequent and often unnecessary and excessive air travel could work in practice. There'd be some limit, like you'd be able to take one flight every two years. Right. And then if you want to take another flight within that period, then you pay some tax, £100 extra or something. And if you take another, then you're increasing it. That's another £200 for the third flight or £400 for the fourth flight. Yeah. So do you think that's quite a draconian measure? And do you think those more draconian measures are kind of needed in this environment? Well, it certainly would be an imposition. And people in business that fly would suffer from that. But that would give them motivation to do business in other ways. It would get, certainly inspire those of us who are attending conferences with our climate research to do things in a different way. And would therefore require that the bodies hosting those conferences facilitate them in different ways so we can be involved internationally, but from a local perspective. Yeah, so, yes, it's draconian, but okay. <laughs> There's things that would come out of that that would benefit us all. Since recording these conversations, the world was hit by the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus pandemic. This had an extremely quick effect on the way that everybody works and interacts. 
An immediate change experienced by those of us in the sciences was the inability to attend international meetings and conferences that for a long time have been fundamental to the communication of findings and contacts with fellow researchers within one's field of science. Large climate science conferences, such as those run by the American and European Geophysical Unions, known as AGU and EGU, attract thousands of researchers from all over the world and have large associated carbon footprints because of the huge number of air miles required. Researchers from the UK must travel more than 5,000 miles to attend AGU, which in 2019 was held in San Francisco. I somewhat reluctantly made that journey myself this year, my first transatlantic flight and my first out of Europe. For an early career researcher such as myself, these events are often vital to building careers. For many years, these conferences have spoken about the need to change this practice and have held workshops and brainstorming sessions to come up with innovative ways that conferences could run to drastically reduce the need for air travel. However, nothing significant was ever done when the pandemic hit, this all changed. The conferences were forced to make arrangements to facilitate the presentation of new science that had already been scheduled to take place. I caught up with Leighton at the end of the summer of 2020. Leighton explained how this new conference system worked and we spoke about whether we thought it had been successful. I've been to a number of different online workshops and meetings so far this year, more than normal, I think. You can access them without having to travel, so you can drop in and out of different sessions that are relevant to you without having to attend the whole workshop. So in some ways, they've been really, really valuable. There's downsides, so you don't actually get to have any face-to-face -face social interaction with lots of the other participants. So although the science aspects are fantastic, I'm certainly not meeting new people, which is something I used to get from science conferences. So it sounds like there are both positives and negatives to these virtual workshops and conferences. But how does Leighton see these developing in the future? In five or ten years' time, there's going to be a lot of people who already have virtual reality goggles, say, and have ultra-fast broadband, where they're able to interact in real time and have meaningful, engaging interactions. So does Leighton think this is a permanent shift in our culture? I've spoken to a lot of scientists who have no intention of going back to travelling for conferences whatsoever. This situation we're in has shown that it's definitely viable to have online conferences. But I've also spoken to a minority of scientists who are really keen to get back out there and start traveling again. There's PhD students who love the idea they get to go and spend time in a foreign country. And there's professors who love the idea they get to go and spend time in a different institution and submerse themselves in a different way of thinking. But there's going to be a much better balance where we may travel rarely and the majority of the time we'll be participating remotely. And I really hope that AGU and EGU steps up and does something about that. In 2019, around 28,000 scientists travelled to San Francisco for the AGU conference. This equated to an estimated 151 million miles of combined travel, resulting in nearly 70,000 tonnes of CO2 emissions. As Leighton explained, these numbers are not entirely surprising. When you're catching your plane, you'll recognise a large proportion of the people that are in the airport or recognise where they're going because they're carrying a poster tube. You know what stood out to me though? Once lockdown happened and we started to talk about how much people had been flying, it really stood out that climate scientists weren't travelling as much as the average business person. Nowhere near 
and nowhere near as much as the average retired person. There's some groups out there that are doing far more travel and those people have had to face up to the fact that that lifestyle doesn't balance with our future. We just can't go on that way. From a business perspective, employees can work just as effectively from their home spaces and they don't have to get on a plane to have those interactions. I think we're going to have a really serious impact in terms of our emissions and because of that shift in mindset. You know, there's lots of evidence that says that the majority of people, they don't want to go back into the office because there's no payoff for the majority of us in doing that. We'd much prefer to have our time at home, avoid all that travel, and then with the spare hours in our day, go and socialize with the people that we're actually choosing to see. I don't think they're going to win that battle. The corporations that want to go back to having their employees traveling, I think they're going to have an uphill struggle. The effects of the pandemic have caused significant shifts in the way we work, and there are knock-on effects. Town centres have been largely deserted, with a significant proportion of the workforce staying at home. Is this a positive shift? We were consuming far too much, going out and buying lots of food that was pre-packaged and pre-made. City centres are going to have to transform, but that has some real positive benefits as well. Lots of our towns across the UK are potentially going to flourish as people move out of the big cities, choose to live in places because they're the sorts of communities they want to live in, and travel into work once a month or once every couple of weeks as required. I really enjoyed the Financial Times suggestion that Predamange might be driving around your streets and letting out a tune like an ice cream van style <laughs> to sell you a coffee. I can't imagine the number of disposable cups that have been saved. It's going to be yeah. vast. Lots of people have been shopping local, getting their food delivered from local organizations. We had a bunch of local independent stores club together and got a delivery system within the first week of lockdown. So real advantages to this situation, which hopefully we'll be able to maintain, that we can reshape our society with some actual social finance. As we discussed at the protest, one of the policies of the proposed Green New Deal is an incremental tax on flying. Leighton thinks this could help stimulate a shift away from business travel. If individuals had their own choices to make, and organisations and institutions like our university had their own choice to make. If the university is being taxed for each flight in an exponential format, they're going to have to really cut down who gets to attend workshops. And that's going to force organisations like AGU to make sure they've got really high quality remote access facilities. If I only had one trip to Australia every several years, I'd really span them out because of my choices in my personal life and only go there rarely to see my family and friends in the you know, country I grew up. And yet, from a work-life perspective, I've been really pressured to go to AGU year on year. So I haven't been able to have that integrity as a climate scientist that I have as an individual. I'm not going back to that. I'm done with that. Another suggestion from Leighton was the idea of a Green New Deal. There's also the idea of a Green New Deal. I think people could really back that as a proposal. The, the concept of having something which transforms our economy, doesn't crash our economic system by making radical change, but instead treats this climate crisis like an opportunity. So if we were able to throw ourselves behind that as a nation and actually invest in new technologies that combat the climate, climate emergency, then we could make our nation and our world much better at the same time. Why wouldn't you want to do that? The Green New Deal was first proposed by Green Party politicians more than a decade ago in the United States, but it gained widespread attention from around 2018, when progressive politicians in the Democratic Party took on the policy platform. House Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, popularly known as AOC, joined Democratic Senator Ed Markey to table resolutions in both US political houses to introduce a path to legislation. 
Here is AOC speaking on the launch of those resolutions in Washington, D.C. Climate change and our environmental challenges are one of the biggest existential threats to our way of life. We must be as ambitious and innovative in our solution as possible. Small, incremental policy solutions are not enough. We are not going to transition to renewable energies without also transitioning frontline communities and coal communities into economic opportunity as well. It is comprehensive, it is thoughtful, it is compassionate, and it is extremely economically strategic as well. When we have this threat that challenges all of us, the solution is going to take all of us too. The name of the policy platform comes from the radical New Deal policies of economic reform that occurred under the Franklin D. Roosevelt presidency in response to the Great Depression of the 1930s, which was widely credited for turning the US economy around. The idea of the Green New Deal is to take on this radical economic approach, but to simultaneously transform society from the current reliance on fossil fuels and the associated greenhouse gas emissions to a net zero emissions economy, run on renewable energy and the sustainable use of resources. As Leighton explained, an important part of the Green New Deal is an equitable outcome for all of those in society. The concept of a Green New Deal includes that idea of making sure that things are fairer, you know, that there's equality across the system. So you can transform your economy, but you can do it in a way that's also supportive holistically. In the UK, the Green Party have pushed a New Deal-type agenda for many years. But in the winter 2019 UK general election, the Labour Party made a version of the Green New Deal that they called the Green Industrial Revolution a central plank of their manifesto. Bringing our carbon emissions down to net zero won't happen by itself. It will only be possible with massive public investment in renewable energy and green technology. One million jobs, from building wind turbines to insulating homes to reforesting to manufacturing new electric vehicles. A green industrial revolution will benefit working class communities with new opportunities in parts of our country that have been held back. Our plan for nature begins to measure up to the emergency that we all face. The Labour Party lost that election, but the green industrial revolution has been firmly cemented into the UK political landscape. More attention has been given to the idea recently as a way of building back better, investing to re-stimulate the economy, create high-skilled jobs and recover from the economic shock of the pandemic, but also decarbonise in the process. Like Teddy Roosevelt did in America when they got people out planting trees after the Dust Bowl famine, you could take all these people who've been furloughed and the young people who are not going to have opportunities that can actually get them out there now, trained up, retrofitting properties, within a really short time frame, you could have a substantial impact on the CO2 emissions. We've seen that things can change really quickly. You know, when COVID happened, they took what was going to be a five, ten-year plan for homeless people in the UK, and they implemented it within a week. You know, if you want to do something, it can be done. They had plans for bike lanes that were going to be like 2035, and they've said, okay, let's make this a 2020 plan, and let's just get it done. Our society can transform quickly. We're told it can't. COVID's been really revealing, hasn't it? To show that actually we can. We could do it now if we chose to. The opinion that radical political change needs to take place was widespread amongst the protesters. I spoke to anarcho-communist Rachel, adorning the traditional red and black, and also Jack, 
member of the Leeds University Marxist Society and student in philosophy, politics and economics. Both Jack and Rachel were very clear about what they thought the problem was. We believe that um, it is capitalism that is causing climate change and that we should be focusing on abolishing capitalism because people are putting profit before the planet, profit before the people. I mean, we don't need to beat around the bush, you know, the, the, the root of the problem is capitalism, you know, the profit motive has driven our natural resources to the ground, you know. Uh, I really don't see any way that we can get past climate issues without understanding that we need to build a socialist economy. You know, we need to nationalise the big uh, monopolies, the big corporations that are responsible for 70% of emissions, and we need to place them under democratic workers' control so that we can actually use the means of production for social betterment rather than for chasing profit. I asked both Jack and Rachel how they thought these radical social changes could be achieved. Uh, that's a very difficult question. Revolution. But revolution, yes, there we are. Social revolution. It means getting rid of the established order, which is only there to make profit, so you've got to get rid of capitalism, which God's come from below, not above. I think the first step will be a socialist Labour government. I feel like that's not going to be enough, you know. Reforms, reforms are good, but capitalism's now in decline. We, we need to sort of look past reforms because there's not enough profitability in, in investing in renewable energy and stuff because once there's a superabundance of fuel, for instance, with renewable energy, then the profit motive collapses, you know. Prices, uh, there's no more scarcity, so to speak. So I feel like we need to look past capitalism and start um, gearing our economy towards needs rather than profit. But does Jack consider these radical changes in the structure of our economy achievable? Definitely, yeah. I mean, you can see it today, it's very busy. Uh, young, young people uh, are getting um, more aware of these issues, and I think they're starting to question why this is the case, you know? I'm seeing a lot of, of radical slogans about it, and uh, yeah, it's really promising. Um, but I feel like, ultimately, the student movement and the young people need to link up with the trade unions and the wider labour movement, because really, it is only work, the working class who can affect real change in society. We need to have uh, we need to have strike committees built up. You know, we need to have nationwide. We need to have a general strike, really, to push this reactionary government out and get a radical socialist government in place. However, Jack's optimism wasn't shared by Rachel. No. No, not at the moment. We don't think it'll happen in our lifetimes. And I know that's a very uh, negative way of looking at it. But while capitalism and the state exists, this is going to continue. So do you think it will be too late by the time things start to change? Or? Probably, yeah. yes. Yeah, you've got to fight. You've got to fight. And we'll keep fighting and we'll keep educating and we'll keep trying because that's what you've got to do. Not everyone there was as revolutionary as Rachel and her companions. As Jack stated, many feel there is a strong need for combined efforts between different groups, including the trade unions. And with these groups all pulling in the same direction, a political solution within the current societal framework is achievable. I came across Kevin, an organising member of the Trade Unions Congress, or TUC, a federation of trade unions. Kevin had helped to organise a conference on climate change to work out a trade union response to what he described as the climate emergency. But we think the trade union movement have a responsibility to come up with practical solutions that change industry and take uh, carbon out of the economy so we can hit the targets that they, we absolutely support. He told me how he had noticed a shift in attitudes recently and a growing interest in the climate change issue. I've organised things in the past and got a little, very little response but this time we've, we've booked a room of 400 people for our conference We've had over 100 people apply to attend 
trade unionists and many groups in campaigning in Leeds. So we're very hopeful of coming up with practical solutions. We've got a campaign for a million climate jobs that take carbon out of the economy, high paid jobs that are alternative to fracking and uh, carbon capture and storage and these other polluting solutions. We think you can come up with practical solutions that generate energy, increase insulation and improve uh, public transport, but offer real alternative employment rather than polluting industries. Others at the protest had different agendas. Some, like the Leeds City Council worker Ray, were concerned about problems that went beyond politics. He began by expressing his concerns about the urgency of the situation. I'm here because I am worried about the state of the environment. 25, 30 years ago it was all something that was going to happen 100 years hence and I was still worried. So the fact that and the scientists are concurring that uh, climate change is, is not something in the future, then it's time to get out and see if we can make a change. I'm a bit worried, though it might all be a bit late to be honest, uh, although that won't put me off coming. Because um, I think the momentum behind business and the way we operate all our Western countries, especially, is a problem. Ray was carrying a Population Matters placard. He explained what the organisation was about. Population Matters is, is a campaign organisation in the UK. It's been around for about 30 years. I've been a member for about 25. Um, we, we're arguing that the fundamental cause of all these problems are activity by humans. Uh, and the more humans there are, the more activity there will be and the greater the impact. So yes, we agree in reducing consumption and using technology, but we think that the smaller numbers of people are important so can, everyone who is around can have a better quality of life. And really important, we can give some space back to nature uh, and back to the creatures which we not only depend on, but the, the whole uh, earth will be a much denuded, miserable, horrible place if there was half the number of species that we can uh, enjoy and you know, and they've got value in their own right of course. I think the time is now, we can't wait any longer, so it's really important that we get the message over, so the more we can do to do that in a peaceful way, the better. The idea of population control is controversial. Some see any form of control on the number of children one is allowed to be a breach of fundamental human rights. Others argue that some kind of control is needed with there being finite resources and space on our planet. Population Matters has some high-profile and influential supporters, including naturalist and wildlife television presenter David Attenborough. The issue of population size is always controversial because it touches on the most personal decisions we make. In the next 40 years, the Earth will need to accommodate nearly 3 billion more people that's more than the current population of the whole of Europe, the whole of Africa, North and South America combined. There are more than a billion teenagers alive today, and most of those teenagers will have children of their own and live long enough to become grandparents. And that's all that needs to happen for there to be nine billion humans alive in 2050. Ray explained to me how the organisation believes the human population could be stabilised and eventually brought down in a fair, equitable and most importantly consensual way. The organisation is very much about doing it in a non-coercive way. It's about empowering women, family planning, bringing people out of poverty, allowing them to choose smaller families and better quality lives. Equally, in affluent societies of course, we consume so much individually that any reduction in the number of children we have 
is, is, is probably more important than the African situation. UN projections on population show that there's so many young people on the planet that it, it will be hundreds of years before we can level it off. They're talking about levelling at 11 billion, but actually that may be due to famine displaced people. That's not the way we want to limit our population by any means. We want to do it in a very more civilised way than that. Policymakers have got to recognise there needs to be much more space for nature. 60 million less birds in the US in the last 50 years. We're, we're tearing the fabric of nature apart and it's an absolute disaster. So we've, we've got to create policies that uh, protect nature. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. We've, we've got the technology now that will allow us to do all this by renewables, it's just a mental block, it's, we, we could be leading. The uh, big worry is that we're a small country on our own, China's still building uh, power stations every day. So there's, there's cause for concern as well, I think some people are so blinkered in what's happening, they're prepared to let things go down the pan just for their own personal gain or you know reputations. I later bumped into veteran environmental activist Clive Lord. Clive was instrumental in setting up the People Party in the early 1970s, precursor to what is now the Green Party. Clive has been a long-term advocate of a universal basic income, and like Ray, was concerned about overpopulation, as he told me. The reason I'm here is because I want to save the planet from ecological destruction. Now, I have been trying to save the planet from ecological destruction since 1973, when I was helpful in trying to form a group called People to do precisely that, when it wasn't urgent. People became the Green Party, which found it too difficult because they had not adopted the basic income. The basic income opens doors which are otherwise firmly locked. For example, once you've got a basic income, you can make personal choices. It's the only thing I can see that can help us save the planet in the right, in the right ecological hands. For example, there's been a, a thing about Harry and Meghan flying about in, in personal jets. Harry has said, look, we're only going to have two children. I've said to Harry, look, have one child. If you can have one child and stick at one child, you can have all the jets you like. That's the deal. It's not an ideal deal, but it's better than what you're going to do. It's what you suggested is better than what most people are going to do. So I am suggesting that basic income opens these kinds of doors, allows personal choices, so that individuals can do something to help climate change. I'm blaming the capitalists, but the capitalists are in competition with each other. If one capitalist suddenly decides, right, I won't fly any more airlines, all they do is give market share to the others. They don't save the planet. They do once there's a mindset change where people stop flying. People decide that that's what they're not going to do. That's their choice of downsizing. Anyway, over to you scientists. Clive's website, clivelord.wordpress.com, contains many of his writings on this subject. Some protesters had other ideas about ways to tackle the climate crisis. I spoke to Marie, a passionate advocate for animal rights and a member of a local vegan group. What we're here to do, to do today is to highlight one of the driving forces behind climate change, which is animal agriculture. One of the leading causes of climate change is the meat, egg and dairy industry. Well, the single biggest thing that you can do right now, today, to make a difference is to go vegan, is to adopt a plant-based diet. You can reduce your carbon footprint by up to 73%. Marie was also concerned with equity. 
that climate impacts are most felt by those with the lowest incomes in society. This is about climate justice. This is also affecting the, the, the poorest in our communities throughout the world. And when we talk about climate justice, we're actually talking about justice for all, because Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we cannot talk about climate justice without including the animals, without including everybody from all communities. But we're in a very, very privileged position, some of us today, to be out here, to get time off work, and we need to use that privilege as a platform to speak for those people who cannot get here today and speak for themselves. Marie saw a political solution to this problem. We need to get these subsidies away from animal agriculture and put them into industries that will promote a whole food plant-based diet. There is no reason for farmers to be out of work. All we need to do is put those subsidies so that we can transform those industries to be able to feed double the amount of people now and say, not only do we save animals, we're saving the planet and we're saving our health. I also spoke to a representative of the campaign group Stand Up To Racism, who was also concerned about climate justice but felt that those in positions of power were failing to act. This is one of the ways that's been passed and proven to make them listen to people like us. It's so difficult to get into Parliament and be the change. It's all the same people who go to Eton and get the privilege and have it handed to them on a plate. So people like us, this is the best we can do. Peacefully protest and hopefully make them listen so that they do something. One of the main reasons that Stand Up To Racism is here is because we do a lot of work in Calais um, and with refugees and there's a lot of climate refugees so we're saying that climate refugees should be welcome because we are contributing to the problem that has left them homeless so we should open um, our borders to them. The day of the protest was peppered with inspiring speeches. I listened into Julie Ward, who at the time was a member of the EU Parliament. You know, this today is an act of love, isn't it? We are doing this because we love the earth. We love the diversity of the earth. And this is what you do when the person or the thing that you love dearly is under attack. You defend it with your life. And I've been looking at some of the placards. There's one at the front and it talks about Bolsonaro. Well, I've been to the center of the Amazon. I was very privileged to have a meeting with uh, the Micron tribe and the Kayapo the tribes because they are under threat. And I want everybody to learn about this man, Bolsonaro, who is now the president of Brazil. We have to stand up for our brothers and sisters, the indigenous people. Whose lands, whose culture, whose language, whose traditions have been under attack for years. Not just by Bolsonaro, but by President Tama before him. So what you are doing today, I will send this, photos of this, to my friends in the Amazon. To demonstrate to them that you are standing up for them here today. We are the many. Following Julie's speech, I spoke to Kate Locke at the Leeds University Priestley Centre's Ask a Climate Researcher Station, a place where attendees could ask scientists questions about climate change. 
Kate is the communication and policy officer for the Lees Climate Commission. We, we feel it's really important to be here and be a point where people can come and ask questions. The number one question really is, what can I do about climate change? Right. It's twofold. First of all, you're here. Um, we, we need to make our voices heard. We need to get engaged. We need to get active. Um, we need to apply political pressure. And that's probably the, the biggest thing you can do. And then, of course, it is important to walk the walk as well in your own life. So I'm asking people, do you know what your carbon footprint is? So far they've all said no. So I've recommended that they go to the WWF footprint calculator. They'll probably be surprised. We've done a workshop with people before and they were all quite surprised at their footprint. So I think it helps once you know the areas of your life where you're creating a lot of emissions from because then you can start to tackle it. What I'm finding professionally in my life is that some of the work do, I do now is with local politicians and you know even meeting with some national politicians. And that's where you find the gears grind really slowly and that people are waking up to this. You know, a lot of politicians want to do things now, they want to act. But we've spent all our time trying to get people to a level when they realise that this is going on. People are coming to the table now. And now there's a whole process of education engagement we've got to do really quickly. They are willing and they want to hear. And, and our job now is to really do that education and help them and provide them with the resources and the materials and, and show them that there is a way forward. That, that is so important. Part of the work Kate has done with the Leeds Climate Commission is setting up a citizens' assembly, or citizens' jury, where a representative group of members of the public are brought together to learn about the climate change issue, discuss ideas for potential mitigation actions, and then draw up a list of recommendations for the local authority. I spoke to Dr Kat Scott, a climate scientist at the University of Leeds, who was one of the expert advisors to the Leeds Citizens' Assembly, who told me more about what was involved. Citizens' Assemblies are popping up all over the country and giving members of the public the opportunity to find out a bit more about climate change, the issues behind it and the, the impacts that we're, we're seeing and we're expecting to continue to see, and to think about the specific things that contribute to greenhouse gas emissions in the city or the town that, that they live and what specifically they could do to change policies or to, to, to change behaviours to try and improve the situation. The organisations that are putting together these citizens' assembly, they're taking really great care to try and get a good representation of people who live in different parts of the region, ages, genders, ethnicity, but also taking into account people's opinions on climate change. So whether they already think climate change is a problem, uh, and if they don't, the process is voluntary, so people will express an interest, uh, and then there'll be a selection process to make sure that they are representative of the general population. There have been people who have come with the idea that you know climate change isn't a problem, and it's been actually a really great opportunity to answer some of their questions and the misconceptions. The, the participants put together their own list of recommendations that they would put to the local authority and a report was written and it was just fantastic to see actually how they'd really managed to get to the important issues and, and say we've, we've had this period of, of learning a lot lot more about this issue, discussing it with each other, hearing from a really wide range of people and these are the things we think you should be doing. It wasn't just a knee-jerk response to to being presented with the information. They really had time to think about it and to think about the best ways forward. The participants heard from a range of expert commentators, people like myself and colleagues who were climate scientists, but then also people from their own local authorities. So they were able to give them a bit of an insight into the work that had been done already and, and kind of the progress that had been made. Um, but they also heard from people like authors, people working for charities and, and NGOs who were able to present them with other ways of thinking about things. So I think they really did hear from, from quite a diverse range of people.
the, the issue that came out top was transport. Transport is the, the leading sector for emissions in the UK. And so they were really keen that more should be done to encourage the use of public transport. They had some specific recommendations about that. And they also uh, had some thoughts about a proposed expansion of the local airport. That Having heard all the evidence on climate change, they came to the conclusion that expanding an airport would not be compatible with addressing climate change. The airport is going to be a very interesting example because a lot of people have objected to its expansion. Some people support it. It's very interesting to see the kinds of organisations and people who are in support of something like that, despite the overwhelming evidence that it's, it's going to contribute to climate change. The young people I interviewed at the protests recognised that transport was a vital issue. When I asked Laney and Will, both pupils at schools in Leeds, and another young person who wanted to remain anonymous, what they thought was the number one thing we could do to tackle climate change, transport was top of the list. One big thing is pollution of cars. It would help if we could reduce some people using cars and walking, maybe cycling more. And I think trains are better than cars. I came on the train today. Share lifts to go to places, say you live next to someone and then like share the cars to work. Make it harder for people to get cars and get fuel. Um, put higher tax on fuel and higher tax on cars. So it seems that the opinions that came out of the Citizens' Assembly are well supported amongst young people. I asked Kat whether the council had committed to implementing the Citizens' Assembly's recommendations. The local authority had committed to taking on board the recommendations of the jury when they were formulating their uh, response to the climate emergency. They were going to go away and look at how those things could be incorporated into their ongoing plan, but they haven't come out and said, we're going to do this all or we're not going to. In general, they've gone through and they've said the council supports the jury's recommendation. The airport expansion is probably going to happen. But I don't think that's, that's that hasn't actually been decided yet. So perhaps there's still scope. I think the citizens' assemblies have demonstrated really well that there is public support for taking action on climate change, which is something that I think both local and, and national government have often been slightly caught in the situation of, of kind of knowing, well, there's certain things we could do that would probably reduce our emissions, but may not be very popular with the public. And I think having something like a list of recommendations from members of the public really gives them a mandate to say, yeah, we're we are going to do these things. So I think it's a really valuable exercise. It really does shine a light on the decisions that get made over the next couple of years because people won't be able to say well that that's not something that the public wants us to do so it will potentially highlight where sometimes decisions are made for reasons other than perhaps what is in the best interest of the public. From what both Kat and Kate were saying it's clear that engagement with local authorities is vital to tangible action on climate change. With that in mind I spoke to Councillor Sarah Ferriby who holds the portfolio for Healthy People and Places at Bradford City Council. Councillor Ferriby's portfolio includes many aspects of environment and health and includes climate change mitigation. In January 2019, Bradford Council declared a climate emergency and towards the end of 2019 announced plans to invest £25 million to tackle climate change. I asked Councillor Ferriby where this investment is going. This work has been taking place on environmental issues for quite some time. But obviously, as we see the development of our communities, when they're subjected to flooding, we all see that we need to carry out work to improve the environment. 
and reduce CO2 emissions. So a lot of the work that the council is, is carrying out and the investment is to reduce CO2 emissions, to change people's behaviour. So think more about the environment and recycling. Think about how our plants and trees absorb and store carbon and how we can reduce CO2 emissions in our everyday lives. And that can be things like changing over to electric or hybrid vehicles, reducing energy um, and changing the way that we look at everyday parts of our life and making those small changes. So some of the initiatives are tree for every primary school child. So you're looking at somewhere in the region of uh, 55,000 trees. You're looking at upgrading our fleet to have more electric vehicles, expanding 20 mile an hour zones and work around schools and the widely. Money invested into upgrading council buildings so that they're more energy efficient. Work on flood alleviation in the uplands and the, the peat areas up on the moors and improving recycling rates. Uh, investment that had already been announced is the street lighting project. There's a whole raft of different approaches the way we tackle climate change. We'd signed up to the West Yorkshire Combined Authority, a pledge of becoming carbon neutral by 2038. So there's a West Yorkshire approach here, and Bradford Council has already begun to change the way it works across these areas and departments to reduce our carbon emissions in a deep time frame. So there's quite a lot of work that's taking place with grassroots organisations and the projects that people can become involved with. We've got people that are involved in environmental projects with our arts and green spaces, and that can be looking at the biodiversity of the area, and woodland and tree management. So we've got a number of friends of groups, and they are taking a keen interest in environmental issues in their area. People are getting involved in, in people can and community projects. Everyone is, is looking at the environment differently, and I think there's a lot of people that are engaging, and there's a lot more people that are still to engage. But I think everyone is noticing the impacts of environmental issues that it has on everyday life. So whether that's flooding, we've had some very hot weather this year, people are taking notice of how the environment impacts on our ev everyday lives. There's always more work to do and raising awareness is, is one way of saying we need to change the way that we live our lives. You know, if you have a children planting trees now, those children are planting trees that will be there for their children, the grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and that can only have a positive effect when you see how much carbon that a tree can store. I asked Sarah if we in the scientific community are active enough in engaging with local decision makers and proactively educating them to inform climate policy. I do see documents and, and reports on the work that, that we're doing. Personally, I haven't had scientists approach me, but we have a department that looks at different sections of climate work, probably go to the officers rather than myself direct, and then that feeds into our plans and our policies for improving our climate work. I asked if councillors would be open to approaches from scientists to provide information and education on climate-related issues. Yes, I think that's uh, very good because if we can work closely together, I know that the information that comes through West Yorkshire Combined Authority, uh, obviously we work very closely with them and I know that they have a, a good relationship with the university in Leeds. It helps us make informed decisions. 
With so much progress seemingly being made recently, and momentum building behind both awareness amongst the public of climate-related issues, and also grassroots activism, there seems to be real hope that tackling the climate crisis and limiting global warming is achievable. I asked those at the protests whether they felt hopeful that change could be achieved. Until this time last year, I, was, I wasn't optimistic. And then it seemed to be for me that after the release of the special report on one and a half degrees from the IPCC, that all of a sudden everything really changed. This was sort of the moment where a lot of people who didn't really have a, a great understanding of climate change, a lot of confusion out there, sort of really started to get the message. And it's been great to see the, the youth of the world have sort of taken this to heart and realise that this is their problem, even though it's not their fault. And I think it's been really inspiring to actually see these young people come out and take action. And it's certainly got me re-interested in that as well. I'm very optimistic and I feel like this today gives me really great optimism because there's so many people that are so passionate about making a change. I think we're at a turning point. I myself oscillate day by day. Some days I'm really optimistic, some days I look at the news and think what the hell's happening here. But overall, largely optimistic. Yeah, I think we can do it and I think there's enough motivation and support by people. You know, real people power is coming up. Where there real, really feels like there's a, a change on the horizon. I'm quite optimistic. There are more and more people coming to these protests. There are more and more people talking about this. It's becoming high on the political agenda and we have a lot of young energy. And I'm really heartened by the fact that there are so many people who are coming out and taking action. If everyone tried to, then yes. But if there's some powerful people like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson who don't believe in it, then no. I think we can achieve some changes if we all work together, otherwise that we'll have no planets to live on. Yeah, um, as long as people want to think about it. More people can like make everyone aware of what's happening and how we can stop it. I think the more people that get on board, the better. I think that's the only way that we will get the politicians to listen. I think they've got a, a great deal to do to help in the change. But we have to start from where we are with ourselves. Yes, but no. If we don't do anything soon, then no. But if we do something, if we can do things soon, then yes, I think we can. Absolutely, I'm optimistic. The only time we're not optimistic is when we're not actually out here doing anything. But because we're taking action, there's every reason to be optimistic. Because we're changing the world, people are changing. People are out here with a voice and standing up and finally saying, enough is enough. It has come an awful long way already and the number of uh, the next generation who are so passionate about this is fantastic. The next generation, they're not so set in their habits. You don't hear much about the hole in the ozone there because we fixed it. If humans get their fingers out, they can do incredible things. The world is a different place now. We're not going to go back to where we were. We have to just roll up our sleeves, accept this is where we are. Um, it's not going to get better, it is going to get worse, but we can make it less worse. That wasn't an optimistic note to it. <laughs> In my lifetime, you can see the way things have changed. We're only here for a short time and we need to make a difference. I'm both optimistic and confident that the work that everyone is doing will make a real change for future generations. It's important for the future that we listen to nature for the benefit of future generations. Thank you for listening to this special episode of The Climate Press. The episode was written, produced, edited and presented by me, Tom Wood. Thanks to all of the interviewees and the musicians who contributed to this documentary. To find out more about The Climate Press and to listen to past and upcoming episodes and also to see a full track list of music and to get more information, please visit our website 
www.theclimatepress.com and follow us on social media at The Climate Press.